On this last Sunday of 2020, a difficult year, we come to our last sermon, our last study in the book of Job, a book with its share of difficulties about a man who faced incredible difficulties. After a series of speeches in which Job's friends argue that his situation is in fact the result of some great sin in his life, and Job responds to them, then Elihu speaks, He has some good things to say, but he ends up siding with the friends. Then the Lord speaks to Job. And after a less than enthusiastic response to this first speech, the Lord spoke again to Job. And as I've said before, it may be that I seem a bit harsh on Job. um, That in fact he had learned what he was supposed to from the first speech. That he is small before the bigness of God that his knowledge is limited in time and scope. But the Lord begins the second speech as he did the first. Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job's second response is far different than the first one. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 42, then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, no plan of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. From his response to God's second speech, we find that for Job, the question is no longer why. Why has this happened to me? The question is rather, who? And it's a two-sided question. First of all, who am I, Job? This results in a confession of need. And second of all, who is God? And this results in an affirmation of faith. In his confession, Job repents, and in his affirmation, he believes. Now Job has the correct perspective. I mentioned this the last time that we looked at this No longer does he rely on tradition or hearsay about God. He knows God for himself. No longer does he have to depend upon human reason to define the nature of God. He has been in the presence of God. No longer does he have to tremble in fear before the power of God. He has seen the grace of God. No longer does he have to demand an explanation for every mystery. He has put his trust in God. To the question, who is God, Job has found the answer. It is that God is a God of grace. And knowing this, Job no longer has to have the answer to the question, why? Now we come to the epilogue, which we actually began to look at uh, several Sundays ago. The epilogue marks the end of the poetic part of Job. If you look beginning in chapter 3 up to the first part here of chapter 42, it's all in verse. It's poetry. But now we go back to prose. And if, in fact, you just read the prose part of Job, you'd read chapters 1 and 2, and then you'd skip to the last 10 verses of the book. And if you did this, you would get an almost complete picture of Job in his former state, how he endured incredible afflictions that were put on him, and then how God rewarded his faithful endurance. 
you would have the message that, in fact, God may test us severely with sufferings that we cannot comprehend. We don't know why these things have happened. But that ultimately he will reward our patient, trusting endurance with blessings beyond what we can comprehend. This is a faulty picture. This is because you have skipped all the dialogues between Job and his friends. And then finally, God speaks. As I mentioned before, there are those who are very unhappy with this last part of Job. Some would rather have it cut out and deleted. For some, it's too much like a fairy tale ending, and he lived happily ever after. Um, For some, it seems to affirm the conventional idea that if you are pious and if you are patient, then in fact God will bless you beyond what you can comprehend. And if this is the case, then this would in fact vindicate what the friends said. The friends kept saying to Job, if you get right with God, God will bless you beyond uh, all measure. Some would prefer that it ended with, I repent in dust and ashes. Um, Because, they would argue, there's something to it, that this is in fact truer to life as it is. It is a more realistic view of those who suffer patiently or those who don't suffer patiently those who are resentful against God, and then finally they come to a place of repentance. So again, people would just, let's cut out the last 10 verses of the book of Job, um, that somehow this was added later to make the story come out all nice. You know, a nice bow, it's, you know, it all comes out uh, with a very nice ending. But if, in fact, you cut out the epilogue, Job is left in dust and ashes. He has repented of his pride. That is good. Um, He's repented of his wordiness, all that he has to say about God and against God. Some would suggest, in fact, that if we cut out the epilogue, we would have a picture that we are left to our own devices, that the tragedies of life, you gotta grin and bear it, just, just gotta hang on. But in fact, that is not the case. Philip Yancey in a book called Where is God When It Hurt, Hurts wrote, he has been there from the beginning. He has watched us reflect his image He has used pain, even in its grossest forms, to teach us. He has let us cry out and echo Job. He has allied himself with the poor and the suffering. He has promised supernatural strength to nourish our spirit. He has joined us, heard and bled and cried and suffered. He has dignified for all time those who suffer. He is with us now. He is waiting. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? would argue that the book of Job should not end at verse number six. We do, in fact, need the epilogue. We'll look at it today. Having spoken to Job, God now turns and speaks to the friends. Look, if you would, at verses seven, eight, and nine. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After speaking words of grace to Job, the Lord speaks to Eliphaz. And we think he addresses Eliphaz because Eliphaz is the first one to speak. He may have been the oldest of the three friends. And God says, I am angry with you and your two friends. And what is the cause? Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. The three friends were guilty of misrepresenting God. They dishonored God in their arguments against Job. And they are condemned for justifying God's name, or in God's name, his ways to men. And in the process, they condemn his servant Job. If we do not have the epilogue, we might wrongly conclude that what the friends said was right. That all the things they said were correct and that Job was guilty of some great sin. And we are told that he repents in dust and ashes, so he must be repenting of all those terrible things his friends accused him of. The friends are wrong. We need to know this, and we find this in the epilogue. They are wrong because they limited God in how he could respond. If you do something bad, God must punish you. And if you do something good, God must reward you. In other words, God is bound by the moral order rather than God being the source of the moral order. But beyond this, and we saw this in our study, they failed to see God as the God of all grace. But God's last word to them is not anger because God is the God of all grace. He speaks to them in grace. He gives them a place of repentance he doesn't say, listen, you guys are wrong and you're toast and I'm going to destroy you for what you said. He, in fact, calls them to repent. It's not an easy road, by the way. They have to sacrifice seven bulls and seven rams as a burnt offering. Um, this in means they have to admit that they are wrong. It's also an expensive offering. This is not a cheap like, oh, my bad, sorry, God, we said these terrible things. They, in fact, repent, and they need to give evidence of their repentance. And then they have to go to Job that he might pray for them. As one author noted, it's a nice touch that under God's prompting, the sinner in the person of Job makes intercession for the saints, the three friends. The men who had accused him of some horrible, horrible sin. One of them even called him a maggot, a worm. They now have to go to this person and ask him to pray for them. And the question is, will in fact Job pray for them? Well, let's start up. First of all, will they repent? Will they do the sacrifices? Will they go to Job and ask him to pray for them? And yes, they do. They do. Now the test is for Job to see whether or not he will pray for them. You will note if you read the, the passage that God seems rather confident that Job, in fact, will pray for them. 
He doesn't say, go to Job and let's see if he'll pray for you. It's like, and he will pray for you. Uh, and I will accept his prayer. And, and why is it that God is so confident? I think it's much more than the fact that he knows all things. But it is because Job has seen God as a God of grace. He has received God's grace. And those who, have been, who are recipients of God's grace are then in turn gracious to others. One writer puts it this way, how can we know if Job has been forgiven, accepted, and restored by God? The proof is in the grace that Job gives to his foes, his friends, and his family. Grace received is grace to be given. Now let's talk about grace and restoration in Job's life. Look, if you would, beginning in verse number 10. We'll read to the end of the to the chapter, the end of the book. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. It, the passage begins with the fact that Job, in fact, prayed for his friends. This is in response. Uh, they came to him and he, in fact, did pray for them. And now we are told that God makes him prosperous, giving him twice as much as he had before. It is not a reward for being right. It's not a reward for being patient, for enduring. It is God's grace. If we lose that, if we miss that, we will lose everything. We should not read these verses and think that if one is faithful to God, it will pay off in the end that God will bless you more than you can imagine, because that view is wrong. What we have from God is of grace. It may be little, it may be a lot, but it is all of grace. To argue that economic prosperity comes to God's people if they are faithful is to fail to recognize that this is what the friends had said. This was their argument all along. They kept telling Job, if you get your act together, God will bless you you will in fact be prosperous. Uh, Bildad in his first speech, but if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. Your beginnings will seem humble, so prosperous will your future be. It's almost, if we think that in fact be patient, endure, and then God will give you twice as much like he did Job, yeah, we've missed the point. We're thinking like the friends. Eliphaz told him, you will know that your children will be many and your descendants like the grass of the earth. You will come to the grave in full vigor like sheaves gathered in season. 
And we would say, no. The reality is God's people throughout history, some have been prosperous, many, if not most, have not. Some have had good health, many have not. Some have not suffered at all, some have suffered profoundly. We should not read these last verses and think, I want to be like Job. I want God to give me twice as much as I had before. If we take that view, we are forgetting that that's what Satan said. Let's forget the friends. That's what Satan said to God. Does Job fear God for nothing? You have blessed the work of his hands, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The the position of the friends is, in fact, diabolical. It is satanic. We should not take that position. And if we think these last verses are be patient and endure and you will be blessed financially with prosperity, we will fail to remember that in chapter 3, which begins all the speeches where you have this primal scream where Job says, I curse the day that I was born. He said, what I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And what he feared, what he dreaded, was not the loss of possessions, was not the loss of his children, but the apparent loss of God, that God was not who he thought he was. Otherwise, if it's all about the possessions, then yeah, we will have a rather twisted view of Job 42. In Job's final speech, he recalled longingly, oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. It's about God's presence. And yes, there are things that come along with that, ancillary things. He has children and God has blessed him financially. But when he looks back longingly, he remembers the presence of God. If you think in these verses Job is restored and it's primarily in the economic realm, then you don't know Job and you don't know God's grace. Job did not need these things in order to be faithful to the God of all grace. And God doesn't give all these things to Job in order to get from him the quality of human life in which God delights. What we have here is God being gracious. And one might call this passage the restoration of Job. Um, Let's go with that for a, a brief moment. Let's make sure that it's not the rewarding of Job. You you hung on good and so you get you get a reward. But I'm not sure about the restoration part. Let's go back to that. Because I think what we find here is a restoring of what he had lost. But he is still the child of God. He has a relationship with God. Um, Job doesn't need these things. They are things to make him better, to make him a recipient of God's grace. He has already received God's grace. He says, I have seen you. I had heard of you before, and now I have seen you. You're the God of all grace. With grace comes reconciliation. In verse number 11, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. 
They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Grace brings with it reconciliation to our fellow human beings. My first reaction in reading this is, where have you people been? I mean, the friends, the three friends, travel great distances to come and see him. And for seven days and seven nights, they are silent. Okay. Where are his, his family? Where are his brothers and sisters? Um, Job has, in fact, asked this earlier on. It's like, where are my brothers? Why haven't they helped me out here? The comfort and consoling of Job after the fact, when everything is back in order, yeah, almost seems hypocritical. Yeah, let's go over to Job's and hang out. Let's eat, because now God's blessed him. And Oh, yeah, we'll give you a piece of silver and, and a gold ring. Well, a man who has been blessed by God with prosperity, financial prosperity, economic prosperity, does not need your silver or your gold. I mentioned earlier, in chapter 6, Job said, A despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. But my brothers are as undependable as intermittent streams. They hadn't been around while he was going through all this. And then in chapter 19, he has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. And then in chapter 30, they detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. And now you guys show up? Zophar had said that this would happen, that if, in fact, he repented and got his act together, that, in fact, many will court your favor. Well, the point is not about Job's being restored, okay? The point, or the question is, will Job be gracious? God has been gracious to Job. Will he now be gracious to his siblings, his family, who deserted him in difficult times? His friends who had abandoned him in his misery, some have even had even added to his misery, spitting in his face. Now they show up. And what does Job do? He accepts them. He receives them. He has received God's grace, and in turn, he is gracious to them. I mean, really, would you let them in the front door? I mean, would you let them in the house? Would you take the silver and the gold rings and throw it in their faces? Job does none of these things. Grace holds no grudges. I think that's one reason why we're not always keen on grace. We like holding grudges. We like to nurture them and feed them. Not Job. Job has received God's grace. When God spoke to Job, he did not remind him of his anger, for which he could have struck him dead, or the accusations that Job made against God, which came very, very close to blasphemy. In the same way, Job has done this with his family. 
He doesn't recall to them all the things that they had done against him, how they had abandoned him. He is gracious to his family as God has been gracious to him. One writer put it this way, as God accepted him after he turned against God, Job can now accept others who do not deserve acceptance from him. This is grace, and it is amazing. And then there is grace and his family. After the loss of the presence of God, so it seemed, the loss Job seemed to feel the most is the loss of his ten children. Seven sons, three daughters. These are children whom he loved dearly. You may remember that he prayed for them, that whenever they would have a party in one of the brothers' houses, the next morning Job would offer a sacrifice because he said, I don't know, maybe my kids sin in some terrible way and I want them to be protected from God's wrath. He says, perhaps my children have sinned against God in their heart. And he did this, and we're told this was his regular custom. This wasn't a one-shot thing. He always did this. Now we are told he has ten more children, seven sons and three daughters. And the three daughters are discussed in some detail, none for the sons, interestingly enough. We're told three things about them. First of all, their names, Jemima, which means turtle dove, Keziah, which means cinnamon, it's a spice, and then Karen Hapak is eyeshadow. By the way, some of you may remember back in the day, we used to have a little girl in this church named Keziah. Anton and Roberta named their firstborn Keziah. Um, so we're told their names. We're not told the names of the sons. We are told about their beauty, that there was no one as beautiful as the daughters of Job, and their inheritance. In the ancient world, which was a patriarchal by nature, daughters usually did not get any inheritance unless there were no sons. We see this in Numbers chapter 27. Why does Job break with tradition? The tradition is, Job, you give your stuff to your sons and not the daughters. Why does he break with tradition? Is it because they're beautiful? No, it is because of grace. As God has been gracious to Job, he is now gracious to his daughters. One writer puts it this way. In a patriarchal age, grace gives to women. In an adult culture, grace gives to children. In an affluent society, grace gives to the poor. In a macho world, grace gives to the weak. In a Jewish world, grace gives to the Gentiles. In a Christian community, grace gives to the sinner. The question has been raised, if you compare the catalog of possessions that we have here versus what we find in chapter 1, we in fact that Job, we find that Job's possessions have been doubled. He had 7,000 sheep, now he's got 14,000. He had 3,000 camels, now he has 6,000. 500 yoke of oxen, now he has 1,000. 500 donkeys, now he has 1,000. But at the beginning he had 10 children, and here at the end it's 10 again, it's not 20. And why is this? Well, first of all, let's do with the, uh, deal with the obvious. Children are not possessions. 
okay? And they should not be thought of as such, as things to be replaced. A wondrous possibility is this. Job has recognized that he has not actually lost the first ten, that he would one day see them again. So when he, he starts out with ten, and then when he gets ten more, in reality, at the end of time, he will have twenty. He will have twice as many as he did before. And this is the grace of God. Now we come to the end. And we need to recognize that it is not only the Lord who blessed Job, but if you look at verse number 11, it is the Lord who brought all this on Job. And Job's always clear about that fact. We may not be, when we think of difficulties that come in people's lives, we may think, well, that's the evil one, that's Satan, it's diabolical. Job is very clear, and we should be as well, that it is the Lord who brought this upon him. Ken Myers, in one of the earlier uh, volumes, said that for over a century now, we have lived in a world of rationalization, bureaucracy, and technique, with no room for mystery or miracles or grace. It is in this context that we've studied the book of Job. And what we have learned, what we've learned, there's certain things we have not learned. We've learned who God is. But we never have learned, and we will not, why these things happen to Job. In a book in which his friends, quote-unquote, have rationalized and reduced Job's tragedy to some formula, instead we encounter mystery. We just don't know why God allowed this to happen. We see the miraculous, God restores Job, and we see grace. Three things that our culture, I think, has turned its back on. This is what the book of Job is about. There are those who see the Christian life as becoming a process of searching for a message from God, interpreting and decoding signs or signals that God is sending us, or reading our internal or external world for evidences regarding what God wants for us in the future. But isn't this what Job was wanting? Isn't this why he was crying out? He wanted God to explain to him what was going on. Job's friend said, we know the answer. We can decode. We can interpret. We know why all these terrible things have happened. It's because you're a, you're a wretch. You're a maggot. You're a worm. And when God speaks, God gives no explanation. He does not explain to Job why these things have happened. What he does is he reveals himself as a God of grace. Some things to keep in mind or to remember about the book of Job. What we learn from it. First of all, there is more going on than we will ever know. We have Satan being in the presence of God. Job's never told that. Okay? There are things going on that we do not know about. And all these millennia later, we still don't know why God did these things to Job. 
we might think that we might have special insight. After all, we're, all these centuries, these millennia later, we've finally figured it out. And the reality is, we don't. We know about the conversation between God and the accuser, in which God pointed out his servant Job, someone in whom he delighted. And then God lets, Job, or lets Satan do to Job what he will. We know this, but we don't know why. We don't know the why of it. We may know more than Job did, but we still don't know as much as we think we do. We need to be very careful that we would say, oh, this is why this happened in my life or in the life of someone else. I know why this happened. We may see a part of it. I don't want to just sort of dismiss it out of hand, but we don't see the whole of it. We learn that from the book of Job. The second thing, and perhaps the most important thing, I've gone through this now twice, the most important thing to Job was the presence of God. Losing that was what he feared more than anything else. This is why we have chapter 3, the primal screen. And this is why his restoration in chapter 42 is not about things. It is about a restoration and a deepening of his relationship to God. The third thing is, we always ask why when we should be asking who. Who am I and who is God? God never answered the question, why did you let this happen to me? Why did you do this to me? Instead, in God's two speeches, he reveals who he is. He is the God of all grace. This is something we need to remember from the book of Job. And lastly, the encounter between God and Job results in Job being gracious to his friends, who had said these horrible things about him, to his, his brothers and sisters who had abandoned him and now show up when everything is hunky-dory. He is gracious to them. And he is gracious to his children. That's why the three daughters are mentioned. He gives them an inheritance. A man who has been shown grace is in fact gracious to others. He gives them an inheritance not because they are beautiful, not because he's become sentimental in his old age, it is because of grace. And then we come to the last two verses of the book of Job. You know, at the end of Ecclesiastes, the teacher writes, here is the conclusion of the matter. Job's book doesn't end so neatly, um, in part because it takes a different approach to the question of wisdom. Um, but I, I would say that the book of Job ends as powerfully as the book of Ecclesiastes does. If you would, look at verses 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died old and full of years. By the way, this expression, old and full of years, is an epitaph that is used of Abraham, Isaac, and David. Some might say, well, this is a terrible way to end the book, because he dies. Um, shouldn't it just been that he got to see his uh, children to the fourth, and their children to the fourth generation, and then, period, end of story. Um, if we were in charge of the universe, Job would not have died. 
But as we've seen in this series, if we were in charge of the universe, there would be no grace. Everything would be just exactly right. But in fact, there is grace. If somehow we could all go back in time and be with Job on his deathbed before he died. And we would have said, Job, what's up? What do you, what do you think about this? Are, are you content with this? I think he would have said yes. Because it's not about possessions. It's not about children. It's not even about our lives. It is about God. God's presence. We don't know all that, what Job knew about the afterlife, but I think he knew that to leave this life, as Paul would say, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And at the end, I don't think Job would have said, boy, this is not the way I wanted this story to end. No, it's the way all our stories will end until Jesus comes back. We will all one day die. The issue is not, what do I have? It's not my family, as dear as they are. It's not about my life, as much as we cling to it. It is about the presence of God. And at the end of the book of Job, we have a man who is content. He's content. Because he has seen the God of all grace. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give thanks for Job. For the lessons we can learn from his life. But we confess that oftentimes we misread these lessons. We focus on the wrong things. I thank you for the clarity of Job's thinking. That he came to see you for who you are. And the thing most precious to him was your presence. Not his life. He suffered so much early on. It's not his family, his children whom he loved dearly. It's not his possessions. It was you. It was you. The most precious thing to him, your presence. We live in a society that is driven by consumption and sentimentality. It's all about us, what we can buy and consume, about the superficial relationships, or perhaps even deeper relationships we can have. And somehow you are absent from the picture. Spirit, I pray that you would work in our lives. Draw us to yourself to see what is truly important. The grace that has been shown in the coming of Jesus into the world has been shown to us in a tremendous way. May we then show that grace to those around us. And yet, in some weird way, we're not always keen on grace. We would rather be ungracious to others 
We would rather get revenge. I thank you for Job's example. How gracious he was to his friends who had said horrible things about him. To his family who had abandoned him. And then when you gave him ten children, three daughters, he is gracious to them as well. In this year of a plague, a pandemic, we may look to the book of Job for answers. I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not where is God? Why has he allowed this to happen? The question we should be asking is who is God? Who are we, creatures made in his image? May we take these lessons to heart now that we've finished our study in the book of Job. Thank you for bringing us together on this Lord's Day, the beginning of a new week. May we have a sense of your presence as Job longed to have. Pray for Grant Francisco as he moves to Washington, D.C., and begins a new job, a new chapter in his life. Watch over him and guide him. Thank you for your grace and for your great love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.